good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My special guest today is international best-selling and award-winning mystery writer Louise Penny, author of 15 novels featuring Chief Inspector Armand Gamache. Louise came to Winston-Salem for a Bookmarks event that was sponsored by Inside the Writer's Studio, and I had a chance to talk with her while she was in her car on the way to town. I hope you had a chance to see Louise at Bookmarks and that you'll enjoy my conversation with one of the great mystery writers of our time. I'd like to start backwards, if I may, and ask a question that I have asked all of our guests who write series of books that star the same protagonist. Um, And that is, obviously, without giving any spoilers, can you tell us if you have thought at all about how the series and Gamache's place in the narrative might end up? Oh, dear, that is such a difficult question. (laughs) I did at one stage. Early on, I sort of had an end point. Um... But that changed. I think I sort of thought about it thinking that one day I might tire of of the series or even of the man. And but then as it's gone on and I'm, you know, fifteen, it's coming out, I'm writing sixteen. Uh, it, kind of the opposite has happened. I've just grown more and more fond of, of it. So I think the end point is when I end. Right. <laughs> Much right. when he ends. <laughs> I mean I think about um, you know, Agatha Christie, for instance, who wrote the final novel for, for Poirot right. so many years before uh, and, and then had it published at the end of her life. And I just find it fascinating that, that you know, she was thinking in those terms. You, you know. know what? Do you know what I think? And, and, and I love, I mean, I think of Agatha Christie as, as kind of a, a godmother. <laughs> um, and I don't, I, 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 I'm, that was sort of the starting point for, for, for me and my understanding of crime fiction. I think she was able to do it because Poirot didn't change. So she knew uh, yeah. back in the 40s exactly who he would be in the 70s. I have no idea who and where Gamache and the other characters will be in 20 years, so I couldn't possibly write the last novel now. So when you began, you probably had no idea that they would be in the place that they are now. No. Yeah. I, had, I, didn't, I knew I wanted them to evolve. They had to evolve. Otherwise, it would be... Well, I mean, who stays static for 20 years except Poirot? And that was pretty successful. But, <laughs> you know, she, she grew tired of him, and I think that was one of the reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, no, I, I, I knew I wanted them to grow, but I didn't know in which direction and how. I couldn't foresee a lot of what happened to the characters. Your books are not just set in Canada, but I would say, to me, they feel like they are steeped in Canada and in French Canada in in particular. I think anybody who reads one of your novels is immediately disabused of this notion that Canada is a slightly colder version of the United States. Um, (laughs) Do do you see yourself as a sort of a cultural ambassador to your homeland? I do, although that's not, you know, I have no desire to proselytize or to, to act as a uh, you know, the, the as a tourism <laughs> um, uh, cheerleader, uh, but I was very aware um, of location. Mm-hmm. I was very aware when I started Still Life that if it, I didn't, most people I didn't think the books would be published, but I thought if they are, I want the first four books to be set 
in a different season so that anyone who reads Still Life mm. and On in Order would get a sense of what it's like to live in Canada for a year. Because the climate changes, the, the language changes with the climate, the, the food changes, the smells, everything. All the senses change with the seasons. So I, I wanted the location to be a character. And I, and I, and I think a writer who, who doesn't do that is, is certainly, you know, that's within their rights, but they're, they're, they're missing uh, an opportunity. So yes, I, I, I'm not doing it in order to be an ambassador, but I do want to be able to, to represent Canada and the Canada that I love, the Quebec that I love. These, these are, and always were going to be love letters to where I live and to mm-hmm. the people I live with and the, the culture that I, I choose to live in. I, I could live anywhere. I'm very fortunate. I have a laptop. I could live anywhere in the world. I choose to live in Quebec and it's nice to be able to reflect why I've made that choice. Yeah. I, I agree so much with what you said about location being almost like a character to me. I find so often once I've settled on location, the story starts to grow out of that rather than the other way around. Yes. You know? Yes, there's a saying that, that history is geography spread over time. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true of stories. I want to take a few minutes to talk about the art of writing books in series. And you mentioned when you when you started, you had an idea for how, how you might have four books in four seasons. Uh, writing a series is very different from writing one-off novels. Do you t- tend to work on more than one book at a time? Or do you have an idea of arcs that are going to extend through multiple books as you're working? I do now. Yes. As I said, at the beginning, all I knew was that I wanted them to grow, but I really didn't know. I didn't know the characters well enough uh, to really know how they would grow. Um, now I do have a sense of where they're going to go. And, and when people read the books, and particularly when they reread the books, they see that sometimes four or five books previously, little things were seeded. Some of that was intentional. Uh, well, it was all intentional, but some of it I knew I would pick up that thread three or four books forward, sometimes I just sort of throw the seeds out there thinking, well, I may or may not use that later. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I have, I try not to, it's a, it's a struggle. It's really when you, when you, A, you can tell I'm Canadian, <laughs> A, <laughs> but when, when it's, it's trying to have a good sense of the characters and their souls and their spirits and uh, who they are. Uh, where you might want them to go without forcing the issue, because sometimes the best ideas come out of nowhere. So you kind of have to be open to that, those grace notes, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time have some place for them to go in, in case the grace notes don't show up. Have you ever written something in one book that sort of boxed you into a corner later on and you thought, oh, I wish I hadn't thrown that one out because now I can't go in this particular direction? That's a really... <laughs> That's a really interesting question. Um, I, I, yeah, there were some things, right? Readers are very forgiving, uh, although I'll sometimes get a question about why this and why that. In the first book, I think I described Gamash's mother when she heard when, uh, that her own mother had died, reacted in a certain way. Um, and, and then I, I later wrote that Kamash lost both parents when he was a child. So 
clearly I had made a mistake mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. by describing that in fact the mother was still alive, <laughs> and then suddenly she had died thirty years before. Um, yeah, I, there's some things I regretted, including one of them. Uh, we talked about sense of place. I intentionally didn't use the names of real places in the first few books. Right. Um, now I've begun for the last number of books to evolve out of the fake names and started using the names of actual places that exist. So that's a, that's a decision that, that was a mistake and that I wish I hadn't done. Um, but most readers, even if they notice that, are very are forgiving. Yeah. But that's yeah. also one of the reasons. Sometimes they say, I'd like to find out more about Ruth or I'd like to know more about Clara's background or what have you. And I'm loath to do that. And I explain it exactly for what you're describing. But if I start to describe where Ruth was from, or if I had 10 books ago, then I'd be stuck with that. Right, right. Now I don't, I really don't want to define them too closely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've written that your late husband, Michael, was the inspiration for Armand Gamache. How are the two of them alike? And also, how are they different? Well, physically, I think if you'd met Michael, you would say, oh, there's Armand Gamache. <laughs> Um, but they were both, I, I do describe Gamash as being really more like a professor than a, than a commando. Um, and Michael was a professor of medicine, so they have that in common. The fact that they both gentle souls, but, but very, very smart. Michael was um, the head of hematology at the Montreal Children's Hospital. He had a terrible, terrible job. Um, and he had to, he saw terrible things. He saw a lot of mm. death of young, of children, yeah. of course. Um, but he was a happy, happy man because he understood by watching the suffering of the children and their families, he understood how precious life is and what mm. a betrayal it would be for those of us who get to live it of those children who don't get to live it. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to live it with joy and with gratitude, with courage. And that's the main thing he and Gamash share. Gamash is a happy man. He's a joyous yeah. man. Yeah. He's a man who has a lot of friends, who loves life because of how much death he has and suffering he has seen. Yeah. So on the subject of this incredibly popular hero, Armand Gamash, he's not always clear-cut, black-and-white sort of superhero. He often occupies this moral gray area. And I think he would probably be the first to admit that. And the first to admit that though he has a lot of strengths, he he also has weaknesses. Do you think it's his strengths or his weaknesses that make your readers like him so much? That's such an interesting question. I think I think it's certainly his struggles make him human. I think mm-hmm. someone who is always right and always brave and always going to win the fight. Um, it's very, it's, it's easy to admire them, but it's very difficult to recognize yourself in them or right. to aspire to that kind of perfection. So I, I think it is the flaws. There's one of the books is called How the Light Gets In. Right. And it's that, that, those lines from Leonard Cohen, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Mm-hmm. And that's how the light gets into all of us, and it's how those cracks in Gamash, it's how the light gets in. But you have to have those flaws, and, and, and he does. Yeah. And yes, you're right. I mean, I loved how you described the fact that he lives in this, this moral gray zone. And as, as I get 
older, when I was a child, certainly a teen and early 20s, things were much more black and white, much clearer. Yeah. And as I get older, I realize that, oh, wait a minute, it's not necessarily all that obvious what the right thing to do might be. And, and I find that fascinating with Gamash and with the other characters it's as they struggle to figure out what is the right thing in the long term, not the short term, but what is the right thing to do in the long term. Yeah, yeah. Gamash has these, what he calls his four statements that lead to wisdom. And I'm really curious about the origin of those four statements. And if you personally find that those four statements lead to wisdom in your own work. Oh, great question. Yes. I do. The, the, they start, they, I, the first time I heard them, interestingly enough, because you asked about Michael, was, the, was when I, I really clued in to Michael as an extraordinary person. We had sort of lived, you know, in, in on the periphery of each other's lives for a, a couple of months, but he didn't show any interest, and I, I just, you know, he was just Michael. Um, and then I was at a meeting that he was chairing, and he he opened the meeting, not in the regular way, by reading the minutes and calling it to order and doing the whole who's here thing. Um, he said, I'm going to start the meeting by reading the four sentences that lead to wisdom. And he recited them and paused. Then he went on with the reading of the minutes and everything else. Oh, and wow. I just... The world stops. Do you know those moments of clarity where yeah. the world stops and yeah. you know that something has changed? And I just looked at that man and thought, I didn't think this is the man I'm going to marry because I, he didn't know who I was, but I just thought there is an extraordinary human being. Yeah. And I've yeah. never forgotten those four sentences. And yes, I do think they lead to wisdom. They certainly lead to humility. And I think humility can lead to wisdom. For, for our few uh, listeners out there who have not read any Louise Penny novels, we're going to let you go and read the novels and find out what the four sentences are rather than <laughs> feeding them to you. <laughs> Forcing me to remember them now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I you, always forget one, even though I said I've never forgotten them. I think, oh, my God, don't let Shirley ask me what they are because it's always one. And it's not the same one. I always, oh, I know. I always yeah. forget a different one. <laughs> You have recurring characters who live in the in the town of Three Pines, and some of these recurring characters are not exactly charming, likable people if we met them in real life, and yet on the page we really love them. How, how is it you can make someone that we would probably dislike if we met them so much fun to spend time with in the, <laughs> in the context of a novel? I, I think you're thinking of Ruth in particular. Well, yeah, I mean, she's certainly the, <laughs> well, the main one in that uh, descriptor, yeah. One of them. Yeah, she's uh, elderly and, and, and bitter, and not not your regular sort of crotchety but sweet old lady. She's, she's just embittered and she's angry. Um, but like all of us, she has a saving grace, and her saving grace comes out in her poetry, and, and it is a really keen self-awareness. She knows who she is and what she is. And an awareness of, of human nature. Um, and I love writing her, and I, I think that comes through. And there are, I, The readers, while they, as you say, may not want to spend a lot of time with Ruth, actually a lot of them identify or claim to identify with Ruth. That mm. The fact that she tells it like it is. Yeah. Now, Ruth Ruth has a difficulty separating truth and opinion, and she thinks the two are the same, and of course they aren't. 
um, but she has no problem voicing her opinion. And I, what I wanted to do with Ruth was I wanted to create a community, Three Pines, um, where decent people live, but, but that is inclusive, that can embrace someone, um, the dissenting voice, yeah, yeah. can em- embrace someone embittered. It doesn't have to, it doesn't only embrace people who agree with them. Um, and that's a challenge. So you, you to stay on the character of Ruth for just a minute. You mentioned that she is a poet and, and sometimes you actually write passages of her poetry, which I think is a brave thing for a prose writer to do. I don't think I could ever do that in the middle of a novel, but, but one of the things I notice in, in your writing is that you often have this sort of poetic fervor, even to your prose. And I notice it particularly, um, and maybe this is my own bias, but I noticed it particularly when you're writing about two topics, food and the weather. Um, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how each of those elements have become sort of defining factors in your work and, and worthy of that sort of poetic attention. <laughs> Great. Well, I do want to, though, point out, and I'm so happy you, you talked about the poetry and the quality of it. Um, it's not actually mine. I oh. wish I could take credit for it. But the poetry that's ascribed to Ruth comes from two published poets, one of whom is um, Margaret Atwood. And it, right. the poetry is, is used with permission. So I, I'm, I am not a good poet <laughs> in terms of the regular type of poetry. But thank you what you say for what you said about the writing, because my writing has a, a different cadence. And I think some readers took a little while to understand that I'm, I actually do know how to write a full sentence, but that I choose sometimes to break it up with with just statements or single words or, you know, sometimes longer passages, but that there is a reason why the, the rhythm is what it is in the writing. Um, and I love what you said about the food and the weather. It goes back in many ways to what you were just talking about or asking about with the, um, with the setting, with, with being set in Canada. And food and weather are obviously two ways to do it. And I, I want, what I really try to do, Charlie, and I think most writers do, and I struggle with it, and I think sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not, but I try to lower the fourth wall so that readers, when you're reading a book, you, you're not, you don't feel like you're reading anymore, and you certainly don't feel like you're a voyeur. You feel like you're actually walking beside the characters, that you're sitting in the bistro, that you're eating the food, that you've come in from bitterly cold blizzard and now you're sitting in front of the fireplace mm-hmm. and that there's just this and you smell the wood smoke and you taste the the red wine or the cafe au lait and you so I want the books to be sensuous. That is a great way to to engage all the senses and to to lower that fourth wall, to have people live the books. And so I try to describe the weather, not part of the trick is to not over-describe, just to have the telling detail. And the same way with food, that food is very sensory and sensuous. I think also the way you describe wanting to sort of have have that fourth wall lowered, and maybe this is part of factor of of writing about 
the place where your readers know that you live. I think your readers also feel sort of connected to you personally, not just to Gamash and to the and to the characters. Um, so I'm going to let you tell a personal story because I'm going to, as a writer, I'm really aware of those little parts of a book that readers sometimes skip over, like the acknowledgments and the copyright page and the dedication. <laughs> and the new book is dedicated to Bishop. So I wondered if you would tell our listeners a little something about Bishop, who has a book dedicated to him. Oh, Bishop. Bishop Bishop was our uh, golden retriever uh, who, who died a, a few months ago. Um, I had to put him down. Every, every night I went to bed just thinking, oh, please, dear Lord, take him in his sleep so I don't have to make oh, yeah, the decision. Yeah. Such a coward. Um, but finally I did, and anyone who's had to do it knows it's, it's an, almost an out-of-body experience. Yeah, yeah. Bishop came to us. Michael was already suffering from dementia. He was almost certainly in the middle stages by then, although when you're in the middle of it, you don't realize you're in the middle. Sure. Um, but he was relatively far along, and we had lost our other dog and were without a puppy. And I thought, I thought, really, I can't take on something else. And then a friend said, well, there's this older dog. He's nine. He's a golden, which is what we had before, and, and he needs a new home. And he's completely trained. He's a lovely guy. Will you look at him? So, of course, I made the mistake of saying, it turned out not to be a mistake, but, you know, the, the fateful words, well, bring him over. Right, right. <laughs> what, and what then it's I all over. It's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's over. Yeah, it's doomed. <laughs> and he came into the house, Bishop, big guy, big boy, male, just gentle, a goofy look on his face and the tail wagging, and he walked right over to Michael, who was sitting, doing his jigsaw puzzle and sort of in his, slightly in his own world. And he, he, Bishop put his his teddy bear that he was carrying right on Michael's knee and sat down and looked at him and Michael looked down at at, at Bishop and then both of them looked at me with this both had these goofy grins on their faces Aww. and and I, actually I captured that moment for some reason I had my well I had my iPhone and I just clicked hmm. and I have that moment framed but How lovely. Uh, so that was Bishop yeah. Bishop stayed with us and he he barely left Michael's side. And, uh, and yeah, and he passed away a few months ago. Oh, gosh. Let's talk about the new novel for a minute. A Better Man uh, comes out on the 27th of August. I'm one of the lucky few who got to read an advanced copy, but I promise no spoilers. Um, give, us, give us a quick preview of, of A Better Man. A, a Better Man is set in Three Pines. Um, Gamash, who has been uh, suspended for a while pending uh, an investigation that has been going on for a suspiciously long time, much longer than probably should have. And he's, they've, they finally reinstated him, but not at the level he had been at. Uh, so he's, he's back at work. Um, and the first thing that he's investigating is the disappearance of this young woman, uh, who's essentially just about the same age as Gamash's daughter. So Gamash, as he's dealing with the father, who's increasingly frantic, obviously, as they try to search for the daughter, um, Gamash finds himself identifying more and more strongly with the father, and he he understands that this may be a a problem, but it's also something that he, he himself can't really control. And one of the... I read a lot of poetry and a lot of, um, obviously, a lot of other books, and many of the books are inspired by lines of poetry or 
sometimes prayers, lyrics and songs. And in this case, it's a um, a couple of things. But one is a line from um, Moby Dick. Yeah. And the, the the theme of Moby Dick, the white whale, they're going after the revenge, um, going after something that is all consuming. And you have several characters um, who quote from Moby Dick during the course of the novel. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, and I quote pretty much the same lines, and that's the "all truth with malice" mm-hmm. in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and how sort of insidious that is, and how often we ourselves have been victims of that, and probably guilty of that too, of 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 saying things, you know, this is for your own good, saying things that are true, but saying them to wound, right? And, right. and that becomes a lead motif through the books, through the book. I love that you mentioned the the origins of titles, and I love your titles are. I find them simple. They're usually short, which is great in a title. They're poetic, and I love the fact that the meanings sort of gradually unfold as we read the book, which to me is is the best kind of title. Can you talk a little bit about the art of titling a book, and at what point in the process do you settle on a title? Ah, oh. ah. Oh. I love this conversation with you. It's so wonderful to talk to another writer. <laughs> the, the things that, that other people might take for granted are sometimes a struggle. Um, early on in the process, um, I didn't have as much power over the title. I would choose a title, of course. Particularly the second book, I called Deep and Crisp and Even because it was set at uh, Christmas time. Right. And... The publisher kept calling it book two, so I understood <laughs> that maybe my title wasn't a given. Um, but then, you know, a funny thing happens once you, you make the New York Times list, they start paying a little bit more attention to, to your opinion, and right. maybe you do have something on the ball. Um, the title some, often changes. When I'm saving a book on my laptop, I... Generally, the file is called book 14, 15, 16. Right, right. Um, so I don't, I don't sort of put the title uh, as, as a, a permanent feature. Um, but then in the sub-routine, I call it whatever it is, a, a better man. And some titles stick all the way through. Some books have titles that change as the themes change. Sometimes I think when I start a book, I know what the book's about. By the end, the theme has actually changed, and so the title has changed. Mm-hmm. Sometime the mm-hmm. book, like A Better Man, didn't have a title until, well, fairly early on, actually. I think it was even the first chapter. I'm writing about Gamache and Isabelle Lacoste, one of the um, other agents, is wondering whether after this long investigation and painful questions asked Gamache and the humiliation he was put through, now that he's back, whether he's going to come back as a as a bitter man or a better man, and and that's when I thought better man. Yeah. That's yeah. that's it's not just a title, but it's a question. A better man. Who's a better man? Is this person going to be a better man? Yeah. Not just Gamash, but all the characters. You use a term in uh, a better man called the term situational ethics. And first of all, tell us what you mean by that. But also, tell us if dealing with situational ethics, I mean, to me, it almost feels like the theme of this novel. And I wonder if it could even be the theme of Gamache's career. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's just part of 
of being human. It first occurred to me in my personal life when um, I believe in socialized medicine. As a Canadian, that's one of the one of the foundations of our society mm-hmm. is that there is a social safety net that, that we believe in, um, in, in in social welfare, in uh, generous unemployment benefits, in free education, and we believe in 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 medicine, in, in free healthcare that's covered by tax, of course. Um, but it's what we believe, and then. But there is a somewhat of a two-tiered system in that there's the free medicine, and then if you're willing to pay extra, you can you can go to to private doctors. Right, right. But I believe in socialized medicine and in supporting that. You know, until someone I love gets sick, right, right. <laughs> then suddenly it's like, wait a minute, I'm going to skip the line. I am going to pay whatever it is. I will sell the house, and we're going to go. We're going to go right to the very best there is. Screw socialized medicine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. That's pretty much that was that's that's when I realized that I was um, guilty of situational ethics. That right. as long as it doesn't inconvenience me, I'm okay. And in fact, Gamash really isn't that sort. He has much more firm ethics. Yeah. Um, but but his his ethics are, you know, long term. Like he doesn't believe in killing. He doesn't he doesn't carry a gun. But if need be, he will do it. Yeah, so yeah. I guess to that extent, it's situational ethics, but he doesn't pretend to anything else. I mean, I think there's some wonderful points in this book where he does unexpected and possibly against the rules sort of things, but you can sort of step yes. back and see a larger ethical um, you know, underpinning to, to what he's doing. Right. It's almost like... like uh, the, the, you know what Martin Luther King uh, believed in—that the, the non-violent, um, you know, they're not necessarily breaking the laws of God. They may be breaking the laws of man, but these are the, the laws that are being broken are not necessarily moral laws. Right, right. This novel begins uh, in a way that your first novel could not possibly have begun, and that is, it begins with a series of tweets, which. I've seen cropping up in yeah. I've seen these cropping up in crime novels lately, but they didn't exist when you when you wrote the first book. Um, how is that changing world of technology and social media? I mean, I'm curious to know how how it's played out in real life, small town Canada, but also how does it affect your portrayal of a fictional small town Canada? It's something I really struggle with because I don't want the books to devolve into techno crimes mm-hmm. where everything mm-hmm. is solved because they can they can track someone's cell phone and, and or they can decode it and know exactly what they said and erase the, arrest the person uh, because that has no interest for me it it, it, it takes out the um, the human element so it is something that I struggle with because it's also a reality so I don't want to turn my back on that fortunately while now in three pines, um, cell phones are available. It's still spotty. So, yeah. and and that's the reality in many of the smaller towns in Canada. And not not necessarily because the satellite coverage or the Wi-Fi coverage isn't there. It's it's because of the topography. Um, you know, the mountains and the valleys and, and things like that. Um, that's that's the reality where I live. So that's what I reflect. But it it is getting, and I and I'm. 
I'm not exactly a Luddite. I, I'm, I use technology. I'm up on it. But I don't want to have to spend half my life trying to stay up on what right. Twitter is or what right. Tweet, right. tweeting is or what, what technology is, what, what is possible now. But I think it's, it's in danger of dehumanizing a lot of, a lot of stories. So there's a certain amount of things that I just willfully turn a blind eye to. Yeah, I think it's interesting how, it's, how it plays out in fiction. In, you know, if you think about sort of the classic thriller uh, trope, it's that the, you have a hero or a heroine who is sort of on his or her own. You know, everyone's out to get them, the good guys, the bad guys. And it's hard to be on your own if you have the internet in your pocket. And so I see a lot, right. of, a lot of books where conveniently in the first chapter, somehow the hero no longer can use the cell phone for whatever reason, or loses it or something. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all coming up with these ways of getting rid of the cell phone so we can go write a nice <laughs> old-fashioned right. thriller. You know? <laughs> That's true. Or the other thing, too, is I, I often think, geez, had I known all of this was going to happen, I probably would have set this back in the 1980s. When, when it just wasn't an issue. Yeah, I mean, that's I did that with my first novel, um, which was a lot about the rare book business, and I wanted to write about that business before it became an internet business. You know, it was just a totally yeah. different world. And so, so yeah, the only way to do that was to back set it, as you said. Um, you you choose to write certain words and phrases in French because you're writing in about life in Quebec, and there's a unique sound to that language. And I also see a lot of word choice in your writing that I think is driven by sound. I think you've even quoted a couple of these. You, um, the, the A better man, a bitter man. To me, there's a sound mm. to that. Or there's a, a little bit later, you say, literally in some cases, some places. Yeah. Um, not just a word, but a world. Can you talk about the value of hearing your words as a writer? And, and also, I'm curious to know if you ever listened to the, at least in my household, tremendously popular audiobooks of your novels. Oh, audiobooks are becoming huge, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, I don't listen to my audiobooks. I listened to, because I was so excited when Still Life, the audiobook came out. So I, I, I threw it on, I think it was a DVD, and um, listened to the first two or three sentences and turned it off and never listened to another. Mm. Not because it wasn't good, because in many ways it was too good. Yeah, I, I, yeah. It was, I could see that it was going to mess with the voices that I had in my head. Sure, sure. So I don't, I don't listen to them at all. But I think perhaps because I like poetry so much, and I love the spoken word and storytelling, so I think that's why I kind of hear, hear the words in my head as I'm writing them. So I, I do play with, with how words sound and sound together and that if I, it's possible a, a poetic... Um, element to it as well, without being too flowery or, yeah, yeah. or kind of self-aware, precious about it. I think in the in the same way that you you do that with word choice, I love the places where you do it with syntax and and punctuation and sort of elicit these emotional responses. And I'll and I'll give another quote from a better man as as an example. And here I'm going to state the punctuation out loud. You say his outrage was evident. Period. In his extreme stillness. Period. And in each tightly, period, controlled, period, word, period. I just love that. Um, <laughs> when do you decide it's time to, that, that a passage or a moment calls for that kind of non-traditional syntax? I mean, if we, ha if we had a whole novel of it, it would obviously drive us crazy. But, but when you... Yes. Yeah. yeah I, I, to an, mostly it's just 
instinct as I'm writing. I'll, I'll write it like that. Sometimes in the second or third uh, draft or fourth draft, normally it's actually further along, the fourth or fifth draft where I'm fine-tuning uh, because I'm no longer concerned with what the characters are doing or plot or, or structure. So those issues are already solved to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So by then, it really is a cadence issue, and I will... By then, it'll uh, it'll become obvious that I've done it too often, or that something does need to be broken up for just for again that that whole rhythm, a rhythm of of some, the language, how beautiful is language and how evocative, yeah. and it's not simply the words; it's how how they're put together, how they're cut up, where the where the commas are. Yeah. I've I've tried to come up with a way of describing your work when I, I on very rare occasions meet someone who hasn't already read it, uh, and I wanted something that was better than you know police investigation or murder mystery because there's lots of those. The best I came up with is pastoral thriller. Um, but, oh, but what do you, what do you say when somebody when you encounter someone and you say, "Oh, I'm a writer," and they say, "We all hear this." They say, "What kind of books do you write?" How, what's your response to that question? How do you describe your work? Oh, do you know I am I am terrible at it. If I ever had to do one of those sort of speed dating things with, with an agent, if oh, my yeah. book wasn't sold yet, I would do it. I would, I would be single forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I simply, just for simplicity's sake, I simply say I write crime novels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is that the books aren't really about crime, although no. they're very proudly crime novels. I don't pretend to anything else. Um, but because there is really, for the most part, only one crime, and it's it's about they're about belonging, they're yeah. about community, yeah. not 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 just the community of Three Pines. They're about a, the the deeper meaning of community. They're about friendship and love. They're about longing, um, and they're about duality. They're about the beautiful setting and the dreadful deed. Yeah. They're about the difference between the public face and the inner thoughts, and they. The difference between what we say and and how we feel, how what we're really feeling. Yeah. Um, so it's it's just very difficult to explain that to someone right, you know, in right. an elevator. I, I think you know, for me, any novel in a genre is is at its best when the genre is just a frame for writing about the human experience, as as you say. Um, and, That's a great way of putting uh, it. So I've I was in England for a month in May, and I was going to be interviewing a crime novelist, and I started rereading some Agatha Christie that who I read her mostly when I was a teenager. I read lots of it, but I do notice, and you mentioned you mentioned her earlier as being sort of a godmother. I noticed some 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 parallels. You have we have the slightly eccentric hero, although as you say, Gamache it changes and evolves over time in a way that Poirot, for instance, doesn't. But also she she often has the pastoral setting, the, the limited number of suspects. Um, what other mystery writers have, have you read that, that have influenced you or that you recommend to, to people who enjoy your books? Um, I, I love... I mean, there, there are many the, the modern ones. Anne Cleves, um who's British, of course, Many people know her, Shetland, the Vero series. She has a new series coming out this, this fall. Um, Deborah Crombie, uh, uh, Reese Bowen, um, Peter Robinson. Uh, but I really, really love, I mean, what Agatha Christie was the starting point, and I'm always deeply grateful for her. But like like you, I read her when I was a child. Right, so right. there are some influences, but, uh, you know, I... I 
not not hugely. I think I I, I love uh, Georges Simenon, a, a French writer of the Maigret series. I, I but I really love Josephine Kay. My main influences really were the Golden Age British writers, right. of which right. Agatha Christie was one. It's Josephine Kay, she wrote Daughter of Time. My favorite is the Franchise Affair. They're they'd probably be considered novellas now. Yeah. Uh, and they're fairly short, but they're crystalline in their clarity, and they're just genius, wonderful. And sometimes they're, they're not even they're not murder mysteries necessarily. They're crime novels, and sometimes the question is whether or not a crime is even being committed. Right. They're right. brilliant. Yeah. Every word has its place. The, the characters are so finely drawn. Um, so that she's a real inspiration, and I and I encourage anyone to read. There's a scene in A Better Man in which some of the residents of Three Pines are having a hypothetical conversation that I think we've probably all had at some point in our lives. And it's the conversation about what would you take out of your home if you had to rush away quickly because of an emergency (laughs) or a disaster or something. And so my question for you is, what would you take? I used to joke with Michael that if there was ever a a fire, I was going to take the Nespresso machine (laughs) (laughs) on his own. (laughs) But I do, I look around every now and then and say, or or if I'm in a hotel room or whatever, it's a quiet moment. And I think if the alarm goes off, what do you grab? Um, You know, like most people, photographs. Sure. It's a little less important now because you've got the, Right. The, the modern ones are on my phone, but I would, yeah, I'd grab my phone, my purse, and the old album that my mother put together of, mm. our, of the family and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and our, my wedding photos. We had a mystery writer on the show last month who said that she follows some advice she heard from another writer about what that person called the secret of writing a good mystery. And in this case, they said the secret is to be able to descri- describe the twist in four words. And the example that she gave was Murder on the Orient Express. I apologize if any of our listeners haven't read it, but I'm going to give the spoiler. The twist can be described as they all did it. Do you think <laughs> – yeah, so down to forward. But, but what do you think is the secret to writing a great mystery? I mean, we, we know your books are a lot of things, but they are also mysteries. And what in that part of it, what is, what's the trick? Or is there a trick? Oh, I don't think there is. I think that – I mean, I, I hate to – you know, maybe if I thought about it a little bit more, I'd come up with something intelligent. I don't think it's ever bad to not have an answer to a question because I think it's important that yeah. that listeners know that sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we just sit down right. and we start writing stuff, and it turns out okay. And sometimes it doesn't turn out okay. But it but it's not like we have all these little secret checklists that if we do these twelve things, we're going to write a great novel. You know, it doesn't. It, no, it, and and in fact, just the opposite. I often think that that becomes formulaic. Then oh, I don't yeah. want those things. Yeah. I want. Yeah. I want to feel it. Robert Frost talked about a poem begins as a lump in the throat. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that that's often the way that, that my books start and probably other people's books start, as a lump in the throat, as a theme. It takes me a year to write a book. Yeah. Most, most people, it does take a year or more to write a book. So it has to be about more than a crime. A yeah. crime is an act. It's not a theme. Yeah. So it, I, it doesn't interest me that much. The why interests me. So yeah. it has to be about more than simply the act or about four words. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, Uh, but hopefully they'll give us all a little bit of insight into Louise Penny. So if you're ready, we will begin the speed round. Shoot. What word do you love to work into your writing? 
probably joy. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Gosh, these are difficult. I'm not sure that there is one that I hate to. I, what I don't like in other people's writing, and I won't read generally, is the first person. So I, yeah. I, I. Okay. Where's your favorite place to write? Um, in front of the fireplace at home on my, the dining table. Hmm. Where could you never write? Um, in a car. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Two. <laughs> Dangling participle, clearly. <laughs> um, what was the first book you remember reading? Uh, I think it was probably, you know, besides Sea Spot Run, I think it was an Anne of Green Gables. I think it was Anne of Green Gables. Mm. What are you reading now? Actually, I am reading. Um, What's it called? The library book? Oh, yeah. I love that. The Susan Orleans one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, what book would you like to have written? Um, oh, this is so, this is so, I mean, I'd love to have written uh, The Franchise Affair by yeah. Josephine Tay. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird, yeah. obviously. What sort, what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I, I, I can't, I think life is long and good, and I think anything I want to write, I probably would. That's good. So I, <laughs> and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That my book helped them in a difficult time. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Louise Penny, whose novel A Better Man will be published on August 27th. Even though today's show came to you a few days early to celebrate Louise Penny's visit to Winston-Salem, Inside the Writer's Studio generally posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next show, we'll be going all the way to Israel by way of Skype to talk to Julie Zuckerman about her new collection of short stories, The Book of Jeremiah. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.